Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 311. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So, some quick news from behind the scenes in the Drabblecast dressing room, where things are either sexy or outlawed in 17 different states. Nikki Drayden, who's faithfully served as the Drabblecast managing editor for the past two years, is stepping out to take care of her wriggling new offspring and to focus more on her writing. Nikki's been awesome. A ton of the stories you heard here on the show the past couple of years had something to do with her, and I'm super grateful that she lent her keen eye and sharp editorial talents to help lift the banner of the squid. Nikki won't be missed, though, because she's sticking around. She'll still be managing Women and Aliens Month in March and keeping in touch as an editor-at-large. So don't go jumping off any cliffs or anything. Unless that was previously on your agenda for today, and even then I urge you to reconsider. And just who will be taking over as Drabblecast's new managing editor, you ask? Silver-tongued Syrian leader of the Ba'ath Party, Bashar al-Assad. Silver-maned country music artist, Kenny Rogers. That one hot chick from 90s television show, Designing Women. Which one's that, you might ask? Geez, I can barely remember that show. It doesn't matter which one, you hear? It doesn't matter. I'm sorry I even brought it up because it's none of them. As quirky and supportive of each other through thick and thin, they no doubt were. None of them are the Drabblecast's new managing editor, Nathan Lee. I'm pretty sure, at least. Geez, I can barely remember that show. Yes, Nathan, our up-until-now hard-working submissions editor has more than earned his stripes in the bloody slush trenches of our open submissions pile and is ready to take hold of this managing editor thing like a crab snatches up sausage. And they do, folks. Boy, they do. So help me God, no crab can f***ing resist. So, be sure to welcome Nathan in your high, pitchy bat voice that only Drabblecast fans and, of course, bats can hear, and please direct all complaints regarding his swift response times and thoughtful rejection letters, as well as any issues you might have with Obamacare, just on an ideological level, to support at KennyRogersTheGambler.edu. That's right, support at KennyRogersTheGambler.edu. Nathan was so eager to get all your feedback and thoughtful criticisms and personal opinions on socialized medicine that he provided the email for his day job at some weird online university I've never heard of. In today's competitive, high-tech career environment, knowing when to appropriately hold and or fold them is perhaps more important than ever before. It's estimated that five to ten years from now, crabs will own majority shares in nearly every sector of the sausage industry. A new online, two-year, fully accredited university, which is as much a statement as it ever was not a fact. 
Because if you're gonna play the game in today's fast-paced job market, these crabs are game changers. Son, you better learn it right. So I handed him my bottle. At KRTCBMTW, where we invite scholarship. I want you to picture a fox. Nope, they're smaller than that. I had a burrito and then I unrolled it and now I have pizza. Encourage inquiry. Now why are there pedophiles if we got some sort of pedocchio? And explore the self. I'm at a Cracker Barrel. Classes are filling. Know when to sign up now. At Kenny Rogers Technical College, but more technically a website. It's more than just taking that next step. It's deciding when to take that next step, or when to run, or, or when to walk away. It's your career, it's your future, and it's now. Somehow, also, it defies space-time. At Kenny Rogers Technical College, but more technically just a website. Congrats, Nathan, new managing editor extraordinaire. May your wisdom guide us perpetually into waters even weirder. And speaking of which, for this week's story, we bring you Birds of the Air by Joseph Pitkin. Joe's speculative fictions appeared recently in Analog, Cosmos, The Future Fire, and elsewhere. His story, A Murmuration of Starlings, was chosen by Rich Horton for inclusion in the year's best science fiction and fantasy 2013. And his story, House Flies, appeared in this year's David G. Hartwell's year's best SF-18. The story is read to you by Joe Scalora. In addition to being a kick-ass voice actor, Joe's the marketing manager of Delray Books. He recently read for the horror podcast Pseudopod, which was an absolute privilege to listen to. A story called Enough with the Crazy by Emile Dane. You should go check it out. But not right this minute, because without further ado, we bring you Birds of the Air by Joseph Pitkin. Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Matthew 8.20 Thomas takes his lunch outside the shelter, on one of the park benches that look out over the interstate and down all the way to the containment pond. He has wondered whether a passerby seeing him from the highway would know whether he worked at the shelter or was one of its clients. He has had this thought most days that he has sat here, Today, though, his attention has been arrested by a small patch of goose-like objects floating out on the containment pond. If they are geese, it will be the first time he has seen a living thing on that pond. Dorothy stands behind him with binoculars. Thomas doesn't notice her until she speaks. Those are Aleutian Canada geese, she tells him. Do you have any idea how rare those are? Thomas has no idea. He's not much of a bird watcher. But Dorothy gasps behind him as though she is seeing an apparition of the Virgin of Guadalupe through her binoculars. Back in the shelter after lunch, the men line up at Thomas's table for their shower stuff. Women and kids line up at Dorothy's table, all the regulars, except Thomas notices Janine and her daughters. This is the first day in weeks he hasn't seen them. The men nod gravely at Thomas as they pick up their towels, the little wrapped hotel soaps, the toothbrushes, the disposable razors. Only one of them, Dave, stops to talk. He stands before the table, a paunchy, hard-breathing man who might be 60. Or maybe he just looks 60. He says he can wait another 10 minutes for a shower. You know, 
I would say at least a quarter of the people on the street have chosen to be there, he says. Not everyone wants a mortgage and car payments and all that nonsense. Thomas has never had a mortgage, has no car payment, barely even pays rent. So Dave makes a lot of sense. Thomas notes, however, that Dave didn't identify himself as part of the 25% that likes being on the street. At the end of his shift, Thomas goes into the shelter's living room to turn off the TV, left on as it almost always is. Some kind of ad or infomercial is playing. A woman's mahogany voice is intoning phrases like a blessing. Beautiful, sustainable, ecologically friendly native birds, human genomic transmogrify. One more way the Amazonagra company does good things. Dorothy seems to think that the Amazonagra company has taken over most of the functions of the U.S. government. Thomas is withholding judgment on that, partly because he's not that interested in politics and partly because he doesn't know what to think. About a week later, Thomas is biking to the shelter and sees Dave panhandling a new corner, or at least a corner where he hadn't seen him before, a big grassy space next to the freeway off-ramp. He sits on his haunches like a wretched Old Testament prophet, his easy, flaccid belly pressed against his updrawn legs. At his feet he has gathered what he has received from the drivers today, items that they imagine he is in need of, which they imagine he cannot trade for drugs. A five-pound bag of apples, a pair of tube socks, half a breakfast burrito. He sits beneath twin blue signs at the end of the off-ramp, one pointing to the left in the direction of two gas stations and a Denny's, and the other to the right, towards a third gas station and a Carl's Jr. His cardboard sign says, What a piece of work is a man, how noble in reason. What does your sign mean? Thomas asks. It's from Hamlet. Enculturate yourself, lad. Thomas hears Dave say this, but he is not looking at Dave. Instead, he is watching the cars as they come down the off-ramp. The drivers, as they pause at the intersection, employ an arsenal of ruses to avoid looking at Dave or his sign. The most common strategy is for the driver to hunt, or pretend to hunt, in the cup holders of the car, in search of possible spare change, head down, as though the driver's most pressing desire is not to avoid looking at Dave, but rather to unearth the sixty-five cents she knows to be in her cup holder and which she might pass to Dave without looking. Others look right past Dave at the blue signs above his head with a withering intensity, as though deciding between Denny's and Carl's Jr. were a dilemma worthy of Solomon. Adam and Eve left Eden in despair, Dave says to him, and in their desolation they must have turned back towards the garden, the womb of all life. But God has placed the flaming sword that turns every way at the gate to the garden, which is to say, we can't go back that way. Thomas takes this as a sign that he should get moving again, leave Dave to his intense musings. Thomas wonders as he leaves at Dave's novel panhandling strategy. How much does he make by putting a Shakespeare quote on his sign? In a crowded, competitive environment, everyone is looking for a special strategy, a niche. When Thomas arrives at the shelter, Dorothy shows him a photo she shot with her cell phone of a blurry little bird clinging to what looks like a rose bush. Loggerhead Shrike, she says. That's what Monica turned into. Monica is one of the regulars at the shelter. What do you mean? Thomas asks. Don't you listen to the news? Dorothy asks back. 
the Amazonagra company sent a guy here to turn all the street people and drug addicts into birds. He's got this big high-tech gun that turns people into birds. That's their grand crime-fighting strategy. Step out of line, they'll turn you into a bird. Dorothy's definition of the news was an AM talk radio station where all the hosts and callers had the same intense, unhinged quality as Dorothy. The same intense, unhinged quality as Dave, for that matter. Um, how do you know that's Monica? Do you have any idea how rare this bird is, and it's just hanging around Waterworks Park, and Monica's disappeared? Think about it. Thomas does actually think about it as the day goes on, as Monica fails to show up at lunch, just like Janine and her kids, who also don't show up again for the eighth day in a row. When he comes in, Dave corroborates. The company man's name is Colonel Jacob. Colonel Jacob carries around a strange device that looks like a chrome bullhorn, but which he points at people like a pistol. Colonel Jacob, so is he an army guy or a company guy? Thomas asks. I've never seen him, Dave answers, but according to the people who have, he wears some kind of uniform. That Monday, a bunch of people in white jumpsuits come by the shelter, drive up packed into an unmarked white van. They offer to paint the building for free. You go to hell, you company bastards, Dorothy tells them. But later that afternoon, Dorothy gets a call from Reverend Waller, the shelter supervisor, telling her that the building is going to be painted. Thomas notices, a few days later, that there is no more graffiti anywhere in the city. Eating his lunch outside the shelter on Friday, Thomas sees a small flock of bluebirds dash by. Dorothy identifies them as mountain bluebirds, very rare, as always. After a few weeks, Thomas works pretty much alone in the shelter. Dorothy spends the days driving around town in her beat-up Cadillac with her Sibley guide to birds, looking for former clients. Thomas sits at the desk and hands out towels to the people that come in for a shower. One morning, it is just eight people. Then it's two guys Thomas hasn't seen before and Dave. The next week, it's just Dave. Don't get caught out there, Thomas tells him as he leaves. Oh, I'm a pretty crafty fox, Dave says. Thomas actually sees Colonel Jacob with his own eyes, sees Dave transformed by him. When Thomas is biking towards the grassy patch by the freeway off-ramp, he sees the two of them. Colonel Jacob does wear some kind of uniform, reflective sunglasses and a belted dress coat and judpurs and tall leather boots like a motorcycle cop. He and Dave are talking with one another. Or maybe Colonel Jacob is talking and Dave is shouting or wheezing at him, sticking his fat finger in the colonel's face. Thomas is too far away to hear what Dave is trying to say. By the time Colonel Jacob pulls out his strange chrome gun, Thomas can just make out the sign Dave holds in his other hand. What piece of work is a man? How noble in reason. Thomas expects the sound that comes out of the pistol will be the brash, comical honking of a bullhorn which the pistol does indeed resemble, but there's no sound at all, or none that Thomas can hear. Dave simply collapses. Thomas rides up to the scene to see Dave's shirt and pants and skin and hair in an unruly pile like so much dirty laundry. Out of the pile struggles a little buff and blue-colored falcon, which flies off towards the top of a lamppost a little ways away. He was an English teacher, you ass! Thomas shouts at the colonel. 
Thomas thinks that this is almost certainly not true, but it seems the most plausible defense he can concoct on the spot about Dave. The colonel, who seems to be dialing down his fabulous pistol, looks up at Thomas on the bike as though seeing him for the first time. He might have been, but he was maladapted. He certainly wasn't made for this world. Look at him now. He's clearly much happier up there. How the hell can anybody know that? Thomas flings his hands out dismissively, as though daring the colonel to turn him into a bird also. Perhaps Thomas secretly desires that such a thing happen. The colonel smiles as though meditating on the fabulous stupidity of Thomas's question. Then he folds up his pistol, gets into the white car parked at the corner, and drives away. According to Dorothy, Dave has become an American kestrel. She doesn't even consult the Sibley Guide to make that judgment. The kestrel really isn't rare at all she says. Dave still hangs out near that grassy spot by the freeway off-ramp, hovering in the wind on summer days, waiting to dive on whatever it is he sees in the grass there, probably mice or voles. He doesn't fly off when Thomas approaches. Sometimes Dave lets Thomas sit beneath him where he hovers, balanced like a diamond on a blade of grass. Sometimes it's so quiet, Thomas imagines he can hear the individual wing beats, strangely slowed down, like the tolling of some terrible bell. Huh. Two weird bird stories, two weeks in a row. What could it mean? I'm at a Cracker Barrel. Yes, of course. So, here it comes. If you enjoyed this week's story, consider making a donation to the Drabblecast. Your support allows us to pay authors and offset a variety of expenses associated with the show. Hit up Drabblecast.org, click on any of the support options if you're feeling like a generous and morally upright type today. Or, might I direct you to sign up for an automatic $10 a month subscription, which will give you access to Drabblecast B-Sides, our regular premium content feed. Each month I post at least two new pieces of content there. More stories, new songs, uh, here's a segment from an exclusive interview I did recently with author Tim Pratt and posted on B-Sides last week. I am speaking to author Tim Pratt, uh, a name you're no doubt familiar with if you listen to pretty much any of the fiction podcasts out there or read any e-zines. His uh, stories are hugely popular. He's been all over Asimov's, Realms of Fantasy, Strange Horizons, and uh, and certainly the Drabblecast. Tim, I think uh, we've done at least 10 of your stories throughout the years, probably wow. yeah, probably closer to 12 or 13, uh, all the way back since 2007, 2008. A lot of them stories we came to you and, uh, and commissioned, actually. That's just how, uh, how much the disheveled masses out there cry for more Pratt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm used to it. Yeah, I tell you. The echoes of their callous field hand fists on their animal skin drums, honestly, they keep me up at night, so... <laughs> <laughs> Everyone seems to have their own kind of methodology when they're tapping into the creative process and trying to get their shit going. Do you have a particular process when you sit down to write short stories or uh, do you have a, a writing schedule? How do you otherwise manage your, your work time when you're doing this? Uh, this is going to be profoundly disappointing. I will now tell you my entire creative <laughs> process. I think about something. And then I write it down. Mm. <laughs> I have steadfastly throughout my entire life avoided having any rituals, avoided having any, you know, need to have my special pin in my special place. And people, you know, who require that, that's great. Whatever gets the word down is great. Mm -hmm. But I have always wanted to be capable of writing a story 
on scraps of paper while standing in line at the grocery store. I certainly wrote a lot of fiction in college in my math classes when I probably should have been paying attention to math. When I get stuck on a story, it's almost always because I haven't thought something through or because I'm going in a bad direction and some part of my subconscious is screaming at me to stop and it's slowing me down. And, you know, whenever it's, I find that it's hard to write in such a way, writers talk about how it's hard to get your character across a room sometimes. Like it's just difficult to make anything, any forward momentum happen in the story. And I find usually when that's happening with me, assuming I'm not just really tired, that the problem is that I've taken a wrong turn somewhere. And so usually I I have to back away and do something else. I'm entirely a character-based writer. Um, I'm occasionally complimented on my plotting, which I find hilarious because I don't plot. What I do is create characters who are as believable as I can make them in my head. I try to model their interior states as much as I possibly can, and then I put them in a situation, usually some outlandish or supernatural or science fictional or bizarre situation, and then I just see what they would do. I just let that model of a human, an incredibly simplified, not nearly as complex and full of contradictions as a real human, but this incredibly simple little puppet that I have made, I release it into that situation and I just see what they would do and I report on what they do. And if it's not bad enough, I put in another character who has opposing desires and see how they crash into my first character. You know, if you can make somebody cry over an imaginary thing that only exists as pieces of paper with marks on them, I, you know, that's pretty amazing, pretty amazing magic, pretty amazing conjuring and alchemy. Absolutely. Great interview of particular interest, I think, to writers, new and seasoned, because Tim has some interesting things to say about the craft, and he's no slouch when it comes to that subject matter. It's a great lesson. All right, next order of business, our 100-character story winner this week, a twabble by Pajami. Here goes. Buy a tree shadow from Peter Pan's Neverlandscaping. All the summer shade you want without having to rake a single leaf. If you think you can write a good story using only 100 characters, give it a shot. Post in the Twabble section of our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org. Yours might be next week's winner. Follow the Drabblecast on Twitter, if you aren't already, for those winners early each week. We're at the Drabblecast. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Drabblecast is produced with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Special thanks to our episode artist this week, Spencer Bingham. Spencer's a Bay Area artist and animationist. He floats around the internet at SC Bingham, and his work can be viewed at BinghamAnimation.com. Our program this week was brought to you by managing editor Nathan Lee, art director Bo Kyer, with additional help from Nikki Drayden, Tom Baker, and David Carvin. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you to enculturate yourself, lad. And the night got deathly quiet. His face lost all expression. Said if you're gonna play the game, boy, you gotta learn to play it right. You got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run. You never count your money when you're sitting at the table. There'll be time enough for count when the dealing's done. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, 
erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.